0: We've been reading the book of Acts with one particular um, point of discernment in our mind, kind of a a paradigm or a lens uh, through which we've been reading Acts this go around. Um, We've been reading it in the message because while the message of course has its weaknesses, one of the things that it does really well is sort of drive narrative and allow you to see the story and sort of the woof and wharf of the story in a way that other translations don't. And so we've been trying to see, how is it that the Holy Spirit forms the Jesus life in us? And what's particular to this morning, I think, is that the Spirit forms the Jesus life in us by creating in us Jesus' love for outsiders. The basic background to this passage is that Israel's been living with this vision that they've been desperately hoping would come to pass, this vision that a person would rise up after the kingship or after the likeness of the kingship of David, and that this person would be their Messiah. Well, central to this vision was that Israel would be restored, that its separation, the tension between the tribes, the the disobedience to God, the loss of their central story, their identity, their meaning, that all that would be restored. And that when that happened, the Gentiles, the outsiders, would join with them and that these outsiders would know and love and serve the one true God. That's kind of the story that's lying behind this passage this morning. It's what the psalmist meant as we read this morning. Lord God, let your glory be over all the earth, not just Israel, but all the earth, so that I can praise your name amongst all the nations, which is the basic Hebrew concept for what is not Israel. And I will sing of you and your fame Amongst all the peoples. So, this is what Israel has been anticipating, but it proved hard to accept when it actually happened. So, as we read in the narrative this morning, as it started happening, you know, we read it first in uh, Acts 10 with uh, Cornelius and his whole household coming to Christ. So, this has been unfolding now for, you know, four or five, six chapters here. And at some point, as the scripture said this morning, some Jews showed up from Judea insisting that. If you're not circumcised in the Mosaic fashion, you cannot be saved. Now this uh, gets us to a really important point this morning as we think about the church's ongoing conversation with outsiders. It's important to note that this is not the tradition compromising. Because you know that's what's being said. Look, fundamental to Jewishness is the male head of the house has to be circumcised, or he and his family aren't in. How can you be saying you're taking away the fundamental identity of what it means to be God's people? You can't take that away. That's compromise. I mean, can't you just hear the elders and the traditionalists and others passionately carrying on that argument? Well, I think what you need to see is that this isn't the the tradition compromising. This was the tradition being fulfilled, but in a very surprising way. The way to think about it maybe would be something like this. What if you passionately believe in the rapture? Only to one day see Jerusalem descending to earth. You might go, well, that's a bit surprising. I thought it was turn or burn, fly or fry. Um, (laughs) You know, you might think this is a bit surprising. This sort of messes with my eschatology. Uh, Or what if you're sitting here this morning and you think the rapture is nuts and you just think it's a crazy invention, it's only 150 years old, you know, blah, 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 you know, I don't believe in the rapture, to only find yourself in the air with Tom going, Tom, what What are we doing? Um, Aren't you teaching today? Um, Well, something like that is happening to religious Jews in the first century. Something that they've anticipated literally forever is happening, but it's happening in surprising ways. And so it it brings to the fore this, you know, controversy that we read in the story this morning, and it leads to this crucial historical decision made by James and the elders in Jerusalem, where they said, regarding the outsiders, that the Jewish law should not be imposed on the Gentile converts, that they do not, in fact, need to be circumcised. They don't need to become Jewish in order to become faithful. They don't need to become Jewish in order to not be second-class citizens, Well, now we're beginning to sort of drill into the psychology, the social psychology of the conversation between the church and the world. Because so often what's going on is we're not quite sure what they need to be to join up rightly, and they're certainly not sure what they need to do to be faithful, yet sort of in some ways consistent with their ethnic or cultural background and not be second-class citizens in the church. So the idea was, as the text said this morning, that we're not going to unnecessarily burden non-Jewish people who turn to the master. Here's what we'll do, they said, we'll write them a letter and we'll just tell them, be careful to not get involved in activities connected with idols or these pagan temples and be sure you guard the morality of sex and marriage and be sure that when you're eating with, with um, non-Gentile Jewish people, that you do so in a way that's respectful to their tradition. I mean, kind of not a lot to ask, you'd think, of somebody who's wanting to become a follower of Jesus. But it raises this conflict that all devout Christians feel and I think have felt for all times. And that is, how do we appropriately defend and hold on to the tradition? And if I just think about my lifetime, um, before I was actually a Christ follower, I, can, I, I was you know, raised in a sort of semi-Christian home, and so I can remember at the time all the debates about divorce. Remember when that was a really big deal? Like, could you be divorced and be a Christian? I mean, wasn't the last time you heard that sentence uttered? I mean, that's so 70s. I mean, we're so far, nobody talks about that anymore. And then, you know, there was this sort of sexual revolution of the 60s and all the wondering about that. And so the church, my whole lifetime, because of the the things that are happening in the wider culture, in the wider society, has had to think this through. Where do we appropriately defend and hold to the tradition and yet simultaneously doing what it takes to be generous, big-hearted, hospitable, and welcoming to outsiders. That's the tension. And I want to suggest to you that most tension, most churches fall off that fence one way or the other. And I'm hoping that by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can find our way to stay in that tension, that we don't abandon the tradition, but nor do we abandon the culture who struggles with the tradition, but we find a way to stay in conversation with them in generous, big-hearted, hospitable ways. Uh, some of you may know that a year or so ago, I did a book uh, called The Outsider Interviews where we took the research of David Kenneman and his book on Christian, and we went around America in various cities filming young people, asking them what they think about Jesus, God, religion, the church, Christianity, that sort of thing. Well, uh, the publishers asked us to redo the book, so we're redoing it, and we're going back to these outsiders that we interviewed and asking them, hey, anything different in your life a year and a half down the track? I don't know, maybe it's been two years since we did these filmings, I can't remember. So we've been going back to them to get little snippets to put in the, the new revision of the book, So this is from a girl named Sarah, and I can't remember where we met her, either Denver or Phoenix. I remember that she's a stewardess for Southwest Airlines because we were bantering about that being my airline of choice. And and so here's what she said when she sent us back an email this week, kind of updating her life. She said, I think it's harder for us as Christians to express our belief on tough issues because society has put a stigma on anyone who isn't tolerant or accepting of certain lifestyles and choices that don't match up with the Bible. Now, just to remind me, when when we met her, she was kind of right on the fence. She wasn't sure what she thought about Christianity, but obviously she's come over the line now. She says, Christians have been labeled as narrow-minded, intolerant people. She says, it's more important than ever to really listen to outsiders. But where I really struggle is having the courage to express my own beliefs in respectful, tactful ways. I think the best way to connect with someone with different beliefs is to listen to them, to respect what they're saying, and to be honest about my own beliefs. The most important thing is to stay in their life and to continue to show them that I love them no matter what. I think Sarah gets it. She's kinda like a Cornelius, who was very recently an outsider and now is an insider, and I think she gets that fence where we do have a tradition. We do have a, a something called Holy Scripture. Um, We do have God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to us. There are some kind of, you know, really tangible things here that we hold on to, but we find a way to hold on to it, I would just say again, in big-hearted, warm, welcoming ways. Well, as I've been thinking about this passage all week, um, it brought to mind to me something I hadn't thought about in a long time, and that is the problem of biblical application. Um, It's not as easy as you might think. There's a big word for this. There's a problem of hermeneutics. And, 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 and right at the core of this problem is, how does what was then and there, how do we make a really honest corresponding, one-to-one correspondence between what was then and there and what is here and now? How do we understand, how do we bridge the gap from what a text meant to what a text means? And it's important that I say that now because I'm gonna try to answer the question, well, who are the outsiders today? And I just need to say that this is one of those cases where it's really difficult to make an exact one-to-one correspondence between these two worlds because we're not typically dealing with racial outsiders. We're not typically dealing with ethnic outsiders. Not here, not in Costa Mesa, California. Um, And we're not typically dealing with sort of cultural outsiders. There's a different thing in play here today, so I just want to acknowledge that. But to just say, Even though we don't have sort of historic, covenantal, racial, ethnic divides like they had in the Bible, we still do have people who at least the church considers outsiders, and these people consider themselves outsiders to the church, and I just want us to think about this for a moment this morning to see what we might learn about dealing with outsiders. So who are some outsiders today? Uh, First, I think of people who are kind of of the opinion that there is no truth, or if there is truth, we don't have access to it, that whole thing we've talked about before. So this is a classic sort of statement from the humanist John Dewey, uh, who in the Humanist Manifesto wrote this. There is no God, and there is no soul. Hence, there are no needs for the props or the crutches of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded then immutable truth is also dead and buried. There is no room for fixed moral absolutes. Humanists, Dewey said, believe that one should do as one feels right. He went on to say something that now sounds, you know, you know, you just see this in any magazine, any TV show, whatever, that no one's opinion is superior to anyone else's. There is no hierarchy of truth or values. Anyone's viewpoint is just as valid as anyone else's viewpoint. Now, that's really difficult, you guys. That's as difficult as circumcised or uncircumcised. I mean, we have no capacity to let go of truth and remain true to our tradition. Yet there there are these outsiders who sincerely, in their heart of hearts, believe this stuff. And I'm telling you, they're not little Darth Vaders. I'm not saying they're little, they're not little evil people there are people who are, who are either philosophically convinced or what I find today, especially amongst young people, is they're just full of a genuine angst. It's more of a feeling that there isn't truth. And if there is, I don't know that I have access to it because I only have my perspective and it's happening in this context and language is so slippery and they, you know, they learn all this stuff and they just feel this angst in them that, that, it, uh, that there can't be anything true. I think that's a good example of an outsider. Second, I think, example of outsiders today are people who would have views on human sexuality that are different than what we do. Let me give you a quote. It should be up to every individual of any sexuality to choose the lifestyle that is right for them. Let me say that again. It should be up to every individual of any sexuality to choose the lifestyle that is right for them. Now, if you had to guess who said that, you'd probably guess some talk show host, some cable talk show host, or I don't know, Oprah or... Dr. Phil, or uh, what's that comedian's name who's got her own show now, <laughs> Ellen. You know you, think, you know, you think that somebody like that said that. Uh, I was snooping around this week. That's actually from a, an article in U.S. News and World Report from July 1966. July 1966, U.S. News and World Report, uh, writing on the sexual revolution of the 60s, saying that the pill could be leading to an era of sexual anarchy. Some of you are old enough to remember all the debates around the pill and that the pill is going to ruin sexual morality as if a pill was what, you know, kind of what was holding us back. Um, I see what they're saying, but on the other hand. Um, so the article goes on to say that there's less talk now than there used to be about right or wrong and that the best thing for each individual is to be what they feel is right. 1966. And uh, I, th- I think in the 40 years that's gone by, it's only gotten worse. Last thing uh, I think when I think of outsiders is uh, the, what's often called now the new atheists. And you might think, well, what's new about something as ancient as atheism? And I wondered the same thing. This is when I first got my doctoral degree. I was first teaching at George Fox University because I remember I was flying home from Portland to Boise and I was um, going through the airport to my gate past one of those newsstands and there was this magazine, black, jet black magazine with like a um, uh, silvery white letter, very bold, caught my eye, said the new atheist. I think it was Fast Company or what's the other magazine? I think it was Fast Company. And so I, I picked it up and I read it. This was four or five years ago. Well, now everybody knows of Hitchens and Dawkins and all these guys. But here's what's new about the new atheists. The atheists today aren't people who are just sort of philosophically disinclined to believe in God. They say the church is evil. And they say that unless we stomp out religion, that religion is gonna destroy humanity. And here's a direct quote, I don't remember from who though, that um, false ideas foisted on children are moral wrongs. So Barbara over there across the courtyard with those little kids in the mind of these new atheists is evil. You do not force false ideas like God on children and claim to be a moral people. Tough stuff. These are the outsiders. The outsiders today are people who think there is no truth. We claim to be truth. We're narrow and ignorant. The outsiders today, just as an analogy, you know, just as kind of a snapshot, are people who think we're sexual prudes. The outsiders today are those who think that we're actually the problem on the earth. article I saw in The Economist a couple years ago on an airplane said this, I think this is, I'll get it right, said that when historians look back on the late 21st, 20th century and 21st century, that they're likely to see religion as the prime animating and destructive force in all of human affairs. So, you know, it's easy to read a a narrative like, like Acts and think, dang, that was big stuff. But, you know, James and the elders in Jerusalem, they made a decision and you'll note that they actually did make a decision. And they actually, like, they drew some lines. They were as gentle as they could be. They were as big-hearted and warm-hearted and opening and welcoming as they could possibly be. But, you know, you at least need to keep the sexual norms of marriage pure. And, and you know, don't eat meat, sacrificed to idols and blood in front of your Jewish friends. It's just kind of rude, you know, because you're trying to make a new people here. And this is what God's been up to from the beginning to make a people for himself. Well, what we're reading this morning is that this is often a difficult thing and and the church has to sort of shudder as it goes through it and the world goes through it with them in this very awkward dance. You happen to be alive today at one of the biggest challenging points in human history and one of the most difficult eras for the church in all of human history. And it's very important that you do not picture God you know, up in heaven, pacing the golden streets, you know, with his anthropomorphic head held in his anthropomorphic hand (laughs) and saying, you know, oh, myself, you know. (laughs) I thought when 2011 got here, I'd have a better church than this. I mean, you must not see it that way. You cannot operate out of guilt. Guilt, shame, awkwardness doesn't work. I mean, think about going on a date. It doesn't work. We have to find ourselves to what Sarah, the Southwest flight attendant said, to holding our ground, but in this warm, big-hearted, loving, welcoming, generous, conversational sort of way. I don't, I can't remember now, the line Cindy was singing this morning, and I was not expecting anything like this to happen, um, but there was a line that we sang this morning, and I was sitting here, and all of a sudden, I pictured the night that Debbie and I were converted out at, um, what well, was Calvary Chapel Riverside at the time. And all of a sudden, I just flashed back on that. And I realized something I had been thinking about all week, that I was once an outsider. And maybe you were too. Maybe you were scared of God in the church. Maybe you were confused about church. Maybe you were ignorant about church and thus afraid to go. Maybe you felt that you didn't belong. Maybe you were one of those people who said, I'll never darken the doors of a church. Maybe you were angry at the church outside yelling at it. Maybe you were rejected by religious people and rejecting them back. Maybe you were just busy trying to fill the emptiness in your heart. Well, to quote one of the least read Christian authors in America, in his book, The Outsider Interviews, Todd Hunter wrote, You are a Christian today because someone had the courage on your behalf to take the risk to start a conversation. Someone ignored the butterflies in their sick stomach to try to say just the right thing to you. I think a way forward is something like this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 said, "Um, I've become all things to all men in order to win a few. You remember that passage, right? I love the way Eugene gets it in the message when he has Paul saying this, I entered their world, these outsiders. I entered their world, and I tried to experience things from their point of view, but I kept my bearings in Christ. I did not take on their way of life. That, I think, is the only place we can stand as we go through this very difficult time in church history, trying to be faithful ourselves but in faithful conversation with outsiders. I entered their world, I tried to experience things from their point of view, but I kept my bearings in Christ and I did not take on their way of life. As we pause now to reflect, I wonder if you might pray with me this little prayer that I found myself writing as I was done with this sermon. Holy Spirit, create the Jesus life in me. Give me Jesus' relaxed ease around outsiders. Fill me with his love. Create in me his steadfastness to you while simultaneously staying connected with outsiders. Give me his generosity of heart.